Blog Talk Radio. Funky Writers Show, all about the funk of writing. I'm your host and navigator, Robert Batista. The Funky Writers Show has been called the funky eclectic outlet for all wordsmiths and literati. Now celebrating over six years of dynamic Writers Talk Radio. Check me out on Twitter by going to at author R. Batista. We are proud and honored to have as our special guest, author, photographer, and singer-songwriter, Lorraine Devon Wilkie. Welcome, Lorraine Devon Wilkie, to the Funky Writer Show. Hi, Robert. How are you? I'm fine, and it's really so great having you on. Lorraine, your footprint, both past and present, has been phenomenal. Let's start out with you telling us at what point in your life did you know you wanted to write novels and your stories to the public? Well, the novel thing is relatively new. I I was always interested in writing because I was always just interested in reading. I was an avid reader as a child, and when I came to California uh, pursuing an acting career as a very, very young woman, I got involved in an acting class where we were encouraged to write short plays for our showcases and stuff, and I got involved in writing screenplays around that time, which I enjoyed a lot, and that continued on for many years. Then I began article writing. I started writing for the Huffington Post and a couple of other media sources and started a few blogs, and I always wanted to write a novel, but I I didn't feel that I had a story with the gravitas or the depth that I felt I needed to write a novel until about, I don't know, about five years ago, I'd say, or no longer, actually, maybe six or seven, I got the idea. And when this idea came to me, it was it's what ended up being my first book, which is called After the Sucker Punch. And that was my first foray into writing a novel. And I started writing that in about 2009. And um, so it's actually, this particular chapter is, is a fairly relatively new one. And I'm very much enjoying it. Awesome. That is so great. So give our audience a description on what your latest book, Hysterical Love, oh, I love this title, by the way, is about. What is Hysterical Love? Hysterical Love, is. A, I think it's just a great story. Um, it's a story of a 33-year-old guy who's kind of having an early midlife crisis when at the very beginning of the right. book, He's engaged to be married, and he and his girlfriend, his fiancée, have a misunderstanding that ends up 
he gets kicked out of the house, and that's at the very first chapter of the book. And from from that point on, it becomes a very uh, human exploration of love that's that's contributed to by the fact that not only is he in a kerfuffle about his own relationship, but he discovers in reading an old story of his father's uh, that his father has a very long-lost love from 50 years earlier that the protagonist, Dan, becomes convinced that his father still holds on to. And when his father has a stroke and is in the hospital, Dan is convinced he hears his father calling out this woman's name. And he becomes so um, moved by the idea that his father is torn up about this heartbreak of earlier, and he's so caught up in his own heartbreak that he decides to go on a road trip to find this woman. So the book ultimately becomes sort of a detective story of romance. Uh, He hits the road, goes up to Oakland, California, and along the way he meets people and has these insane experiences, and he meets another woman, and it's a very um, funny and at times heartbreaking, at times it analyzes our modern technological culture. He's a photographer, so there's discussions about how technology has taken over our world. But ultimately, it's this guy's journey into finding out what what really is meaningful for him in his life. And and I think it's a, it's a really uh, wonderful exploration of issues of family and love and aging and creativity and kind of a what, what's it all about, Alfie kind of story. And it's a good mix of humor and, and drama. So I think readers will enjoy it a lot. It has some unexpected twists as well. So it's a fun read. It's a fun and I think it's a fun like, book. Yes, sounds like it has everything you need for, for a great read. Uh, so your protagonist, Dan McDowell, sets off on a journey after a series of circumstances. You mentioned his father's illness. So, and it's always great uh, – father-son dynamic. I love to hear about those type of stories. Talk to us about the relationship Dan has with his father before the illness and before he finds out about his father's story. Were they close or somewhat estranged? Well, I think he, like many men, like many of the men I know, has a conflicted relationship. He loves his father. Right. Stays connected to his father in various ways, but the, the generational difference and the kind of worldview difference keeps them at odds. He finds his father a difficult man to understand. He finds his okay. father difficult to spend a lot of time with, but he, of course he ultimately loves him as well. So it, it's a complex relationship, and I think one that probably resonates with a lot of fathers and sons. Of course. Definitely. It resonates with me. Um, I've recently written stories with female lead characters and find it a fascinating challenge. How did you handle finding the voice of your male character, Dan McDowell? Was it a steep challenge to write from the male perspective, or was it sort of natural for you? It, it felt sort of natural for me in that I have had very strong relationships with men throughout my life. I have five brothers. I have wow. a son. Yeah, I know. I have a son. I'm married. <laughs> um, I was on the road with rock and roll bands for many years that were all men. And I've had strong male relationships throughout my whole life. And many of the men that I've known are very – I had someone say to me once, are men really that verbal? Are they really that introspective? And I right. said, oh, at least many of the men I, I know are. And I based this character on sort of a composite of a few different men I know – and and so it wasn't it felt very natural to me. I sort of he came to me, he kind of just kind of 
popped into my mind of what he looked like, not really what he looked like so much, but just his essence. And so I felt like I just sort of climbed inside of his head and let him tell me what he wanted to say. It didn't feel like a struggle. And I, I had my editor, my main editor was a man, so he was able to, there were a couple of places where I used a word that maybe wasn't the right word, and, and he would right, say, oh, guy right. wouldn't like that a guy would say it like this and so I had some I was lucky to have a male editor who was able to pick the few spots where I might have gone a little less male than I needed to but the essence of the character I felt like came to me very naturally a five-star Amazon I'm sorry go ahead no no it's hard it's hard sometimes not to cross (laughs) over each other when we're on the phone (laughs) <laughs> no, I always love when the guest uh, continues their thought and their point. So um, if you'd like to continue that point, that's fine. Oh, no, I was just thinking that, you know, this issue of men and women writing the opposite gender, I had a, a reviewer make a comment about that, too, something about how what a daring thing it was. And I thought that was an, somewhat of an odd comment because when you think about how many books have been written by men, about women, you know, it's very accepted that, you know, men, Wally Lamb is one of the best writers of women's voices and psyches. I don't know that that is so difficult if you are a person who's paying a lot of attention to the people in your midst. And since we have a lot of members of the opposite gender in our midst, usually, if we are paying attention and observing, which every writer really should be, it's not that hard to grasp the nuances and the vernacular of the opposite gender, I don't think. Well, that's an excellent point. Um, A five-star Amazon review by Brenda says, in part, this is a hilarious roller coaster ride of emotions filled with real feelings that resonated with me, part premarital issues, dysfunctional family, dysfunctional family, and self-realization. This story takes a whole unexpected direction, detective story. Unpredictable, fascinating, and deep with laughable moments that I connected to. Reality built into fictional story. The author knows how to write a real conversation piece. There is a depth that makes this a book I will be thinking about for a long time. Wow. And and you know what? The last thing really is the thing that grabs me. There is a depth that makes this a book I will be thinking about for a long time. Wow, Lorraine, that tells me that your readers actually become your characters when they're reading your story. What a great compliment to you as a storyteller. What do you feel when you read a review like this? It's very moving because um, I don't know Brenda. Um, She's a writer and a book blogger, and um, she is, you know, when she writes about a book, she she was – the only thing I do know about her is that she also left a review on my previous book, and she was the first person to leave a review that was a person I didn't know. And it was very touching right. to me because when you're writing, um, you know, you, I, you're in your head, you're doing your thing, you've got to believe your work. And I do believe in my work. I'm not a, an artist who's a self-flogger who is constantly um, backtracking or self denigrating my work. I I believe in my work and I like my work and and take that however you will, but I think every artist should like their work. They should love their work. If they don't love their work, then they should wait until they do before they put it out into the public. And for me, these stories become very alive and they're very real and I'm very fastidious and particular about every single word that goes into them. I read them out loud to myself 
several times to make sure the rhythms are right, the depth is there. But still, you never know. You know, you put it out there, and you never know how it's going to strike people. And I've learned this from a long career in the arts where you think you've got something great, and the first thing you hear from a record company is, well, what else have you got? Or where's the hit on this? You know, I mean, you, you get used <laughs> I know. You get used to that kind of either uh, apathy or, or negative reaction over stuff that you think is wonderful. So when somebody does get it, when it does strike a chord and it does touch somebody um, who isn't your family or friends or your inner circle, it's a, it's a person out there in the world who just came upon your book, I don't think there's anything more moving because that's really what we're doing this for. I mean, we're telling stories. We're we're trying to communicate an idea, a story, um, a feeling to our readers. And when you feel like you've achieved that based on their response, you know, you just sit back and you go, fantastic, that's what I'm trying to do. I want to move people. I want people to think about the thoughts and ideas that I bring into my work because that's important to me. You know, I mean, I was a person who was very moved by the lyrics of songs and the stories I read. I poured over the meaning right. in the word. And so that's the kind of writer that I choose to be. And so when someone gets it and it resonates and it rings, uh, strikes a chord, there's nothing more moving to me as a writer, um, absolutely. There's nothing better than when somebody gets it. You're 100% right. Let's talk about your first novel, After the Sucker Punch. <laughs> just saying that title just, just makes me laugh. I love it. How did you come across the great title, and, and what's that storyline about? Well, I think just to answer your title question, you mentioned that you like hysterical love, too. I think titles are so important. You know, I was a songwriter and amateur, and and everything that you write, screenplays, songs, even the titles of my photographs, I think a lot about it because in the right. world that we live in today, especially where everything is online, you get very little chance to grab people's attention because you're one of millions. You know, there's so many of us out there trying to do the same things, selling books, selling music, selling photographs, whatever, that you've got to try to grab people's attention with every single tool in your toolkit. And right. uh, a title is so important. You know, I mean, there's a title of a book I read recently that every single time I go to write it down, I have to look it up because I cannot remember what the title is. And I think that's a mistake. I think you've got to have a title that kind of sticks in people's minds. And um, with After the Sucker Punch, that came to me late after I'd written the book. I actually had a different title for it originally. Um, it's a story about a young woman who finds her father's journals on the night of his funeral and discovers that he wrote in his journal that he thought she was a failure. And he wrote this 10 years prior to her reading it. So she doesn't know if he came to a different conclusion about her later or not. Right, right. The story is about her trying to find this out, and that's why it's called After the Sucker Punch, because in the first chapter of the book, she reads this journal, and it feels like a sucker punch. This man that she loved and yep. is grieving over um, posthumously kicks her in the gut, and it's so painful for her. And so the the book is all about what happens after that. So... That title came to me after uh, I had, had completed it and was getting comments from, and actually had been shopping it, actually, to agents and stuff. And I, I met with somebody, a consultant, and she said, maybe think of another title. I had a cool title that I liked, and she said, it's cool, but don't know if it's grabby enough. And so I put more thought into it, 
And I kept thinking, this book is about after the sucker punch. And so that was the title I went with, and I love that title. I think it's perfect. I've had people say to me, because there was some discussion about do you need a subtitle, and I had this one uh, person say to me, you don't need a subtitle because the title says it all. We know that this book is going to be about something following a sort of a cataclysmic event, and that really is what it's about. And and with hysterical love, that came to me late too because it was I was trying to think of a catchy title, and at one point, you know, there's a discussion about what happens to you when you get into this state of, you know, being confused and turmoiled, and sometimes you make these odd decisions about you have these odd attractions and these intense reactions to people that you might not have in a calmer state of being, and that's kind of right. what happens to the protagonist. So that became that became a phrase that was said by one of the characters in the book. Um, anyway, but you asked me about After the Sucker Punch. Well, I basically told you what it was about, so I'm not sure if there's more yes, to like Yes, you did, but we have so much more to cover because it's just so fascinating. And you mentioned something a little while ago that uh, I want to uh, bring about and talk a little more about is you were shopping the book. So many uh, up-and-coming authors and writers, they want to know how to get a book deal. What should they do? Should they go and publish their own stories, get an agent or whatever? So you said you were shopping after the sucker punch. Uh, Talk about the challenge of getting that first book published. Maybe you didn't have any challenges. How was that process? I don't think anyone doesn't have any challenges, Robert. I think it's one of the most <laughs> challenging things in the world. And I'll be frank with you, I didn't I didn't succeed in getting an, an agent at that time. I still don't have okay. an agent. I'll be real frank with you. I wish I could say I did. But my goal, because I had been an independent artist as a musician, a singer-songwriter, a screenwriter, a participant in filmmaking, everything that I'd done was basically done through the independent artist community, and it's very amazing and wonderful and creative and and autonomous and empowering to be an independent artist, but it's also incredibly difficult because you're always, you're pretty much always doing it all yourself. You are a one-man show, and and that gets to be difficult at times, especially as the years have gone on and the industry, the independent artist industry by virtue of the Internet and social media has burgeoned almost beyond measure. There are, you know, somebody, I read somewhere where 450,000-plus books were self-published last year. Well, that's an enormous number. (laughs) How you pull out of that, how you get attention out of that group is very, very challenging. Even if you are highly present on on social media, highly present with an online presence, which I am. I write for the Huffington Post. I have blogs. I have social media. I have my own website. I'm very active online. And when people do connect with me, it's always wonderful, but it's that how do you connect thing. And so to be really frank, I wanted a traditional publishing deal. I wanted an agent. I knew the back. I knew that there were certain negatives, but I didn't care. I wanted someone to help me with this. And so I started shopping the book. While I was writing it, I had a first good solid first draft, but I was shopping it. And um, that's a brutal process, I'll be real frank. I mean, without contacts, without referrals, if you're just cold querying agents, it's very, very difficult. At least for me it was. I've heard stories of people that, you know, got an agent on their second query and more power to them, but that did not happen for me. Um, I went through a number of years of that pursuit. And finally, I just realized, well, Either I'm going to continue doing this for a number of years or I'm going to self-publish this book because I believe in this book. I think this is a really right. strong And so in early last year, 
I said, that's it, I'm done. And I, I did the work I needed to do to research how to self-publish. I had wonderful mentors. I had a lot of great instructional information. And I made the leap. And I'm I'm very grateful that I did because it opened up many, many doors for me. Um, but I still think, you know, I know there are many people in the independent world who are very negative about traditional publishing. I don't feel negative about it. I I think it needs to adapt. I think it needs to be more open. I think it needs to be more willing to take chances on writers. But at the same time, I think that there's a place for both traditional publishing and independent publishing. And there's good and bad in both. I think there's good and bad in both. And that's kind of after a year of doing this and after releasing two books, that's where I stand. I think there's something to be said for both avenues, and each writer has to determine how much time and energy they want to input into which way they go, or both ways if they have more than one book. Um, so that's, you know, that's kind of where I sit on it now. Um, that may change. You know, we'll see as time goes on. Um, but I'm always someone who'd, who'd still be open and interested in getting the kind of marketing help and support that uh, a team can give you. So that's something I'm still exploring. Let's talk about Lorraine Devin Wilkie, the person. I know you come from a large family. Uh, where did you grow up, and what type of child were you? Were you a conformist, rebellious, <laughs> or a little bit of both? Oh, no. I grew up in Illinois. I was born in Chicago, and then when I was very young, my family moved up to a very tiny farm town in northern Illinois called Richmond, and I did my high school years in Crystal Lake, and I went to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, and then I found my way west. But my childhood, my young childhood, was in this tiny little farm town, and I would say I was a rebellious child, more of a rebellious child. I was, <laughs> I was not a conformist. Um, I was a questioning child. You know, I always had a lot of questions right. about, you know, the the church my family belonged to, the school I went to, the the reasons why I had to do things. I didn't want to do anything the way it was supposed to be done, and. Um, being a member of a really, really large family and being one of the older members, I, I kind of escaped without, you know, I, I left school, I left college to go off on the road with a rock and roll band and didn't even mention it to my parents until months and months afterwards, which I find absurd <laughs> now. Oh my God, you know, my, I know what my son is doing, you know, pretty pretty on a day-to-day basis and it's so strange to me. But it was a different time and a very different setting. My parents yes. were all very creative and very much encouraged my creativity, all of our creativity. So that was right, a tremendous right. gift that contributed a little bit to my rebellion because I chose to live the life of an artist, which is by, it, by its nature a rebellious lifestyle. That's right, in general. Um, Lorraine, who were some of the authors you enjoyed reading as a young person, and what were some of the books that affected you the most? And what authors do you read and enjoy today? Um, as a young girl, because I grew up without a TV, and my father used to bring these huge boxes of books from the Chicago Library that we would keep for months, and I would dig through them like a gold miner. And um, I loved Laura Engels Wilder. I loved that whole series, Little House in the Prairie. Right. I loved mm-hmm. – I can't say I remember authors really well. I just remembered loving books about the West and biographies. And, right. Uh, a Wrinkle in Time, I remember that book. I loved that book. Um, um, as I got older, I loved To Kill a Mockingbird. It's absolutely one of my top favorite forever books. Um, everything about that book I loved. Um, I've always 
been drawn to literary fiction um, more than anything else, stories that are deeper and, and tell human stories about people and, yes. and life circumstances. And so today I'm still a reader who likes that kind of writing. Um, some of the contemporary writers that I particularly enjoy, uh, there's a, a, an independent writer named Mark Berry, a British writer who writes the most insanely inventive literary fiction that is, brilliant. I, I encourage anyone to look up his work online, Mark Berry with an A. I love um, even some of the more women's fiction writers like Leanne Moriarty and Jojo Moyes I love, uh, Pat Conroy, Richard Russo, Rebecca Wells. Um, you know, the, the literary fiction writers are where I tend to go. Well, there's so many. If I had you know my computer in front of me, I could pull up a list. Um, sure, sure. That's the, the that's genre great. that I tend to lean toward. Lorraine, Urban Legend has it that you were a rock and roller and maybe even a flower child. Talk about <laughs> that part of your life. Uh, I was definitely a rock and roller. I missed the flower <laughs> child. That was my older sister. Oh, you did? Okay. I was, I was, I was <laughs> that I missed the flower child stage. I, I watched it from afar thinking it was quite dramatic and wonderful. In fact, I said to someone just the other day that I, I – Wish I'd been in it because the the singers and songwriters that I love, Joni Mitchell and Carol King, yes. and that yes. era, the Laurel Canyon singer songwriters, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I wish that I'd been old enough to be a part of that world in Los Angeles because I was so drawn to it as a child, listening to their records. But by the time I got here, we were we were into the new wave era, you know, and and it was um, uh, my rock and roll era was the '80s and. I did it right. full on out. You know, I had the big hair, the shaved sides of my head. I was all a mix of Cindy Lauper and the Thompson Twins and some version of myself and lots of belts and medals. And, <laughs> and it was absolutely one of the most fun eras of my life. I mean, we, we wrote great tunes, which you can hear on SoundCloud, actually, some of them. Um, had tremendous fun as a band, got, you know, wonderful producers and record producers and managers and record label people who were very involved with our project. I was in, had my own project, and then I worked in projects with other people that were also incredible. Um, so that was a really amazing era, which, you know, was kind of encapsulated an entire decade. And then during the 90s, I... You know, I got more into filmmaking and writing, but then back right. in, starting the 2000s, I got back into music and had a band for many years, which is what ultimately uh, evolved into my CD, which um, is called Somewhere on the Way, which was a singer-songwriter, kind of bluesy, rootsy, rocky kind of collaboration I did with an incredible guitarist and songwriter named Rick Hirsch. And so that, that was sort of my evolution as a singer-songwriter. Wow, what a versatile human being you are. Let's talk about one of your other lives as a blogger for the Huff Post. I was reading one of your pieces, America the Petulant, Land of a Thousand Outrages. How did you come to write for the HP, and is Ariana Huffington a cool person to work for? Oh, wait a minute. Didn't she sell the HP a while back and, and got really rich? I mean, what's the latest on that? Well, you know, I actually started working for her after AOL bought Huffington Post, and I, I had right. written her a note congratulating her on the sale. And because I, you know, whatever you want to say about 
dynamic women in the media world. I think as a woman, I know how difficult it is for women to uh, break the glass ceiling, to use a very cliched but unfortunately still applicable phrase. And so, you know, I applauded her. And, um, you know, her – I – I don't know how did it happen. Oh, I had my blog, Rock Paper Music, um, that that I had started writing. That um, and a write a, a publisher named John Merline, M E R L I N E, was the first public person who published one of my articles, and he was involved with AOL News, which then transitioned into Huffington Post. So I sent right. her an email. I tracked down her email address, and I sent her an email, and along with my blog link. And I congratulated her on the sale, and I asked her if there was any way that I could write for the Huffington Post. And unbelievably, and I say this after many, many years and decades of writing to powerful people and never hearing anything back, she wrote me back within the week. And and every single time I've written to her, she has written me back. And to me, I don't care what else you say about her, that has my utmost respect because she knows how to communicate to people. And she wrote me back and she said, I'd love to have you write for the, for the, for the paper. So that's when that started. That was in 2011. And um, I've been doing it ever since. And we occasionally communicate about things in terms of working for her. I don't have interaction with her. You know, of course, she has managing editors and senior editors that I communicate to. But when you're doing it under the auspices that I'm doing it, it's basically your page. And over the years, I've been given carte blanche to to write and post my stuff without a lot of oversight because they trust me. Right. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's been a, you know, there's been a lot of controversy about Huffington Post because they don't, uh, that their payment paradigm is a little, is is kind of interesting. And I, I don't really want to get into a big thing on that because I sure, personally, sure. Mm-hmm. that what they offer in terms of exposure, and, and that's true. People have naysayed that, but it's absolutely true. I've gotten so many other jobs and, incredible writing opportunities by virtue of writing for that paper that um because it's the it's the widest read online newspaper globally um you know so it's wow it's a pretty powerful, i didn't know that yeah i think if you if you if you run it through alexa.com which is a site that gauges the rating you know the the standing of online sites it's way at the top i mean it is so far above anything else so it's a powerful medium, and so writing for them has been exciting for me because I've met and connected and interacted with a lot of people, and it gives me an outlet to spout my opinions about things, which used to be I used to spend a lot of time writing about politics. I write less about politics these days for a wide <laughs> variety of reasons. I've actually written about why uh, I'm writing about politics, but it's a great <laughs> medium. Yeah, I was only kidding about Arianna Huffington. Uh, I admire her so much. Ever since uh, she came on the scene, I I really respect her and uh, admire her a lot. Um, Then there's social media, Lorraine. I see you're on many various sites. Of the social media platforms, which one do you feel is the most beneficial for your brand and which, in your estimation, is best for authors? Or does each platform offer its own special compensations? Um, Probably each one has their own special compensations. I'm not aware of what some of them are. I find them sort of pointless. Um, I don't spend a lot of – I mean, you only have so much time, right, Robert? I mean, it's like there's only so much time in a day. And I think for me I've discovered uh, that maximizing the time that I do spend on social media has been most effectively done through Facebook and Twitter, um, some on 
Google and Instagram, but not much, I don't think. Um, you know, I think younger people who are interested in just posting pictures and selfies and all of that, there's probably lots of fun to be had with, you know, uh, Instagram and Snapchat and right, all these right. other things. Me personally as a Pinterest. artist. Yeah, um, I find Facebook for me personally is the one I enjoy most because you can get into actual conversations with people that are not limited by 140 characters, and I'm very selective. I'm very, I very much curate my page. Um, right. I like to post lots of interesting things and get into interesting conversations with people. Twitter can be effective in terms of connecting with people, but I think it takes a little more uh, skill because you have to learn how to use it by not being verbose, and that's not easy for a lot of people, particularly writers. But I think both of those are very very useful in different ways. But I think it's very important not to get too uh, self-promoting and too billboardy with it, because there are some people that right. all they ever post, you know, read my book, buy my book, and I think that can get yes. to be a trap and can also work against yes, you. Yes, so I agree. My power to avoid that and um, engage with other writers, share other writers, other artists, not just writers, but other artists, other stories that I find mm-hmm. interesting. And that tells you a lot about somebody, what they share, you know, um, what appeals to them. That can sometimes tell you more about them than buy my book. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and help promote other artists. And, you know, what goes around comes around, you know, they'll promote you also. But as you said, it's not always about me, 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 buy my this, buy my that. But Lorraine, in closing, I'd like to ask a question that is probably on many, many minds. Of all your accomplishments as a singer, photographer, writer, screenwriter, rock and roller, what can you say is the one thing you've accomplished that you're most proud of? Wow. Within my art world, um, you know, because obviously as a human being, I would say what I'm most proud of is my family and the circle of Of incredible people I have around me. I think that's my greatest accomplishment, my husband, my child, those kinds of things. Um, from the standpoint of art, I would have to say, I, this is, I'm sorry to answer this so broadly, but I would have to say my entire resume. You know, I mean, I, I feel like okay, I have that works. This, this treasure chest that I'm leaving my legacy in for my child, his children, whatever, the war, anybody in the world that might be interested in it, that includes all the things I've written and recorded and said. Um, of course, being that novel writing is what I'm doing most currently, uh, I'm finding deep satisfaction in that journey and the books that I've written, the two books that I've written, I'm incredibly proud of. I think they're right. I'm very, very proud of them. And so we'll, maybe we'll just end with that, that right now, because they're the most current thing, but really there's a, there's a, a, a big treasure chest where it's all in there and it's got a big bow on it for posterity. How about that? <laughs> and from what I've seen, Lorraine, you have a lot to be proud of. That that is so great. Um, Lorraine, give out any contact information uh, if somebody wants to contact you, order your books or whatever. Give out any websites or any other contact information. Um, well, the best place to go because there's so many sites where the, the book is being sold at Amazon and Smashwords and there's all sorts of social media and on blogs and everything. So the best place to go is to my website, which is you know www.lorrainedevinwilkie.com because you'll find every link to anything you might be interested in and some fun photos um, at that web address. So that would be my advice. Just go there, and you'll see uh, right on the home page, you'll see links to buy any of the books, and then you'll, you can visit any other pages as well. 
This has been the Funky Writers Show with me, Robert Batista. You can find my ebooks on smashwords.com and my novels on amazon.com. Look for my new novel, the sequel to my seminal masterpiece, Brooklyn Story, called Naked in the Jungle, coming in the fall of 2015. My guest, has been a person who, in my estimation, is a legend in her own time, Lorraine Devon Wilkie, and her latest epic novel is called Hysterical Love. Thank you so much, Lorraine, for being a guest on the Funky Writers Show. Thank you, Robert, for having me on. It's been a very funky experience. (laughs) It's been a pleasure. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you. You too, Robert. Bye-bye. 